1: Hi, it's Rusty here. This is part two of my Convo with Graham Crosby a very handy bike racer in the 70s and 80s who was successful in almost every form of road or circuit racing On the way to a brilliant career abroad, he conquered Bathurst Yep, on a motorbike Sadly they don't have a massive bike meet at the mountain anymore, like they they used to. But you you race there. You won on production bikes, on super bikes. That's before the chase, when Conrod was one big long straight with massive almost yumps in it. What was that joint like to ride a race bike around when the Easter races were happening?
0: Well first of all there was there was they didn't have any much, much of the protection that they have now you know the the armco barriers was was some, somewhere there but not much there was a couple of concrete walls but um, it was extremely dangerous when i look back but at the time Bathurst is Bathurst mm. everybody in australia with the motorbikes they all live for Bathurst mm. and my first impression when i got there and i looked at the hill i didn't believe it was so steep and you know we we did we did really well there, but it was kind of suited my riding style because I'd been brought up on the roads in New Zealand, mm. so it didn't it, it wasn't a a surprise, but it was certainly an eye opener as far as the uh, a the the speeds and the the differential in, in corner speeds. You know, you have got the, through the cutting and um, and those sort of things were you know quite tight for a motorbike, mm. but the speed down the straight when you come to, come out of that last corner. Like, you- like like what? I think one of them was like 144 mile an hour or something, wasn't it? I mean, yeah, oh, no, we were quicker than that. Were you? Yeah, we were quicker than that because there was no Cal- Caltex Chase and the bikes themselves had, there was no lifting devices or, or, or anything like that. So you ended up um, basically going over the first hump, because there were two in those days, mm-hmm. the first hump with the front wheel just kind of, just about maybe two, two, two or three inches above the ground. Mm-hmm. Um, but the second one, you actually virtually had to climb inside the screen to keep the weight as far forward to stop it from going over backwards. Holy and that's you know, And they were sort of 170-odd mile an hour stuff, you know, so it was pretty <sighs> bloody quick. Yeah. And... As a consequence of that, you know, you, and these, these stories are there where, you know, somebody's decided to drill the brakes on their RG500 and they got it wrong. And of course, they've exploded under extreme pressure and, you know, somebody's got killed at the end there because that's quite a tight left hander yeah, yeah. trying to stop from that speed. Um, so that was that was a that was always a, a good one but the best race we've ever had over there was in 79 with uh, Ronnie Bolden myself and John Woodley mm-hmm. three different bikes three different riders and every lap three different kind of leaders it was just stunningly good mm-hmm. 25 laps i think it was yeah and I almost won it. <laughs> I won the race the day before, but it was a wrong race, you know, but oh man, it was it
1: was so close. Daunting, exhilarating. What did it I mean, you would go and race touring
0: cars there years later, but what was it like to, to race a bike there? Um the, the, it, it become a it, it become a party theme, you know, mm. uh, and and that was the thing I liked about Bathurst. You know, you'd, you'd go and you'd stay in a pit area and you'd light a fire, and they can't do it nowadays, of no. course. A great big bonfire, and there'd be petrol and be tyres on there, and <laughs> there'd be beer flowing left, right, and centre, and and just the way the Aussies, uh, the crowd got in behind it, just made it such a, a festival um, event or you know, festive mm. event, and that's what I liked about. That's what I liked about racing was that camaraderie that you could you could have not necessarily on the track but in and around it. Mm.
1: Australia was a great step for you but clearly that was there were no barriers you you obviously thought you could do things beyond the Tasman region shall we say. There's a great trip story to Lamont for a 24-hour uh, bike race which is covered in your book by the way. People should go and read it because we won't cover all the stories here in this discussion but and biker is very funny. You guys, I think, got sozzled while waiting for a delayed flight from Australia. The bike ended up getting offloaded in maybe New Caledonia or somewhere like that. And by the time you got to France, you'd missed the first practice, and you actually rode the bike, the bike through the rain, through Paris, and then southwest to Le Mans. Is this true?
0: Ab- absolutely <laughs> true, absolutely true. And I can tell it now because Qantas didn't sponsor people in motorsport in those days, but Ross managed to get a couple of grand off off them, and they said, "Well, look, if you, we'll pay you this. We can't give you airfares, but if you take that to the to a travel agent and buy." The genius. tickets, that <laughs> that's fine. So they gave us the, um, the, the 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 money, which we then promptly gave to Air Caledonia because Air Caledonia gave us a couple of free tickets. So that was that was kind of you know it was a bit of a. I love uh, this. You gave it to completely different airline. Don't don't tell them. Don't tell them. <laughs> so when we arrived in Paris, oh we actually arrived at Sydney Airport at Mascot. You know we were due to send uh, to fly out about about nine in the morning or the flight didn't get away until four in the afternoon. And we're all excited about our first big trip away. And, of course, you have a beer or two or three or five or ten. And we sort of piled onto the (sighs) aircraft. And, honestly, those days were incredibly um, dangerous by today's standards. You know, you'd walk on there, you'd be totally drunk, which which I shouldn't really say, but anyway, I was. They wouldn't have let me on nowadays. And straight down the back, light up a cigarette, you know that's what you did. Yeah. So we spent most of the time hovering around the the back of the aeroplane, drinking beer and and smoking cigarettes the whole way, right the way through to uh, Charles de Gaulle Airport, only to find out that the bike that was coming by Air Caledonia got offloaded due weight in uh, in, in in New Caledonia, wow. so it arrived a couple of days late. Tell me then
1: about the catch-up process in all of that because you practice. As I said before, you had to ride through. You, you rode the bike, I think, on slick tyres, didn't you, in damp conditions,
0: on cobblestones and all sorts of things, didn't you? It was wet. <laughs> it was cold. And I drew the short straw. Everybody was in a Renault van, so they were all happy. You know, they could sit there and do whatever they want on their way all the way down to, uh, to Le Mans. Um, I had to pick the bike up. And I drove through Paris. We didn't go the ring roads or anything like that, mm. just straight through, and it's all cobblestones. Mm. So I'm on this 120 horsepower thing, and all it wanted to do was light the wheels up, you know, slick tires, and we <laughs> rode it all the way down. But it seized on the way down, which was a bit of a bit of a, a shame, it was a brand new engine. And to cut a long story short, we got caught with poor fuel because the fuel that we'd use in Australia is of a higher quality than what- Oh, wow. And the the decision to make, um, you know, as far as fuel went, was made because as we come out of Charles de Gaulle Airport, we had to put fuel on the bike and we saw this big sign uh, depicting Phil Reed on his MV with Elf. So that's it, we'll put some Elf fuel and it'll be good. Well, it wasn't so we continuously s- seized this bike over a probably a two day period in between trying to actually qualify and eventually um, we we're on the last set of pistons and we were sort of just just hopeful of trying to to keep it together and somebody suggested we use some fuel out of a Ferrari that was local there so we put the Ferrari fuel in and hey presto it was a completely different motorbike we went out there I think we qualified 5th or 7th or something like that this isn't a 24 hour race and I'm on a street bike with a couple of CB Geige headlights on, hanging off the handlebars um, and we are going to do 24 hour uh, twenty four hours but just the two of us Tony Hatton and myself
1: crazy and and the people I think saw the Ferrari Ferrari with the fuel being siphoned out of it into the bike going what the heck is going on there and in the midst of all this trying to cobble it together there was a bit of time for shenanigans because someone sent <laughs> <laughs> a floating ball of flaming toilet paper through the dunny system
0: didn't they and back back then the toilets were all kind of connected. with... It was not me. It was not me. <laughs> Categor- c- categorically not me. But in in those days, the the latrines, as they say, were on a slight angle, and every probably ten minutes or so, they would just release a flush, and it would just wash, Zero. yeah, mm-hmm. washed out. But um, if if you've got a flaming newspaper there, it, it it kind of runs along the seats underneath. So there was a bit of um, a, you know, a bit of a problem with that one. I
1: love it. I love it. You would ultimately. I mean, that's just one example of, of um, the, the the international expansion, shall we call it? Let's get to one of the key points here in your career. Now, you arrived in the UK effectively in in 1979. Most of your possessions, effectively in a in a carry bag, a scratched helmet, about 150 quid in your back pocket, and you're ready to take on the world. Did people tell you you were mad? Did you listen to them? What what were What was everyone saying?
0: I I think you can sum that up. The first time I turned up at um, Brands Hatch, and and this is an old story, but, you know, I'd never been to Brands before, so I didn't even know which way the track went or which way the lap, what yeah. the lap record was. So, and, and I, in the first open practice, they allowed us to go up to the gate. And I, I said to the, to the guy, sort of jokingly, I said, oh, which way's the track going? What's the lap record? <laughs> and this guy, he curled his top lip up and he said, who the hell do you think you are? You know, Mike Harwood. Harwood. <laughs> <laughs> so that was kind of a, a, a theme that carried through because I did go out there and I did get the lap record and, and I'd introduced superbikes, Aussie style or Kiwi style to the Poms. Yeah. and it was delivered in a in a fairly uh, impactful way because everybody else was on their so-called pucker race machines you know, and yeah. all the, the clip-ons and the, the cowlings and all that. And I turned it up on what appeared to be just a road bike. Mm. Um, all that was some sheep's clothing, if you know what I mean. So it was kind of a it was it was pretty damn good. So that whole um, thing started, but it was a, it was just a a race. As a preliminary race, race two uh, before I got to the TT,
1: because
0: mm. the whole effort of going to Europe uh, to Europe at that t- at that stage was, I needed to ride at the TT, mm. and I got six hundred pound start money, which was a lot. Um, you needed to because you wanted to, or because it was a
1: part of the game. Then, what? Just 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 explain that.
0: Well, Ross Hannon um, introduced me. Well, I, I'd already said I wanted to go to the TT. He was a bit reluctant because he still um, wears the scars from a mm. crash in 72, I think it was, when they had a mass start. Can you imagine a mass start at the TT? The TT. Well, he only got about three miles and had a big pile up and ended up in hospital there for almost a year. So you can imagine from his point of view that reluctance. he did mm. – the reluctance of letting somebody that doesn't have any experience go there. But I was quite I – was, I was pushed – I pushed myself to go there and I got Mike Halewood to give us a, um, a letter of recommendation that allowed me to actually start at the TT without having to do the Manx Grand Prix as a as, as kind of a practice. That's fantastic. What a glowing endorsement. What did he say? Well, I, I just asked him if he could um, provide a, you know, like, like a, a reference, a reference. Mm. but it was on the back more so than him saying, I'll help you um and because obviously I knew him in New Zealand and uh, he wrote this glowing report which I looked at and went ooh, I hope this works <laughs> <laughs> but the Stanley Michael Bailey at the uh, Bailey, um, Halwood at the bottom there um, that 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 was it it, it, it gave us the start um, so I got the 600 pound start money and I arrived the, the two, about two weeks before and we decided to do the the, the pre TT race at, at Brands and that's when I turned up there, and again they gave me six hundred pound start money. This is a reoccurring theme, but by the way, and nowadays I would say that it's um, it's a group of people that have set prices. You know, it's <laughs> because it doesn't matter where I went in England, it was always six hundred pounds. Yeah, yeah. So all these guys all got together. Um, so I got my six hundred pound there, and then I got to the TT, got six hundred pound there, and I finished fourth, uh, which was. Um, from a newcomer to run fourth in the uh, in the TT Formula One races was pretty good.
1: Amazing.
0: Um, then I went to the post TT race, another six hundred pound. Um, we had trouble with the transmission at that stage, but by by that stage, the, um, the the you know the word was out that they didn't know who this guy was. You know, because I'd just turned up unannounced, um, which is always a good way, yeah. come in the back door. And throughout the whole of nineteen seventy nine. I was caught between originally just only doing the TT and then going back to Australia to, to do the commitments with Kawasaki Australia, but then I ended up doing this, oh, hell, they've given me some, another 600 pound, another 600 pound. So I was backwards and forwards between Australia and um, and, and, and England doing all these, all these races. So it was really, really, really cool. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And also because I was racing with Morawaki, mm. Um, I had to do the um, the eight hour in Japan as well, mm. so there was kind of a lot of movement, mm. you know, transport wise, going all around the world, and and I was just counting to six hundred pounds, six hundred pounds, six hundred pounds, know. <laughs> which yeah.
1: was which was decent back then, wasn't it?
0: It was enough to buy a shout or something. Yeah, mm. yeah, it was it was good.
1: You mentioned Japan there. We'll come back to the whole um, European and American, for that matter, side of things in a second. But between. Moriwaki with with Kawasaki Yoshimura as well. I mean, you had a wonderful affinity with Japan, mate, didn't you? The eight hour is is something that, among the great results you've you've achieved, um, is something I know you cherish, isn't it?
0: Yeah. The, the, now the reason for that, really, is it's kind of a backstory, I, I guess, mm-hmm. in, in that um, Yoshimura used to be um, kind of in in Honda's pockets, I suppose, mm-hmm. as far as producing hot rod bits for CB750s and things. Um, he then went to America in the late 70s and got hooked up with a couple of other people and it kind of turned sour. But uh, when Honda withdrew their support for him because he was effectively beating them on the, at their own game, he then got this sort of be in his bonnet. He said, well, you know, I'm going to beat Honda at all costs. Mm. So he teamed up then with Suzuki and man there's some there's some rivalry there between pops and, <laughs> and honda and i was lucky enough to be part of the um, the the suzuki you know team at any stage any advantage you could have over honda was was just a just a win mm. so the um, the 8 hour comes around uh, 70 i think it was 78 that was the first one mm. honda came up with their 4 or 5 rcb hondas and their teams from europe and japan and all over the place and they're expected to win hands down. Well, they got their asses kicked really badly. And it was a big event. There was probably 120, 130,000 people there. And um, it was won by uh, Wes Cooley yeah. and uh, Mike Baldwin on a Suzuki. Second was um, uh, Sugimoto um, on a Yamaha TZ 750. And then I was run third. We ran out of petrol, believe it or not, at Spoon Corner, which is quite a, quite a way away, and Tony Hatton pushed the bike all the way back from Spoon Corner, and we still finished third.
1: Amazing.
0: And then afterwards we were talking about some various things, and, and, uh, and Tony said to um, Morawaki, he said, why, why didn't you have a reserve? He said, oh, yes, well, we, we did. We had a reserve. Why didn't you tell me? I forgot. <laughs> so, so Tony ran uh, run out of fuel on the main tank and had time had a reserve, but didn't know about it, and that was that was the end of it. And and I remember finishing with, um, I think three three exhaust pipes, and they were all glowing. The discs were glowing red hot. You know, it was just a fantastic, um, fantastic event. But you know, in the middle of the night, um, or you know, say seven o'clock when it's when it gets cold over there the engines just come to life again because you've been in 37, 40 degrees of heat and then you've gone back down to sort of 25 again. Mm. And it's just, there was the first time that I realised that temperature plays so much Mm. uh, as far as performance goes in in, in engines.
1: It's become a race of
0: legend now
1: and you were there for the very first one. Obviously you would go on to, to win it. You continued the fun element in and around it. Did you send... Harasan to pick pick up Tony Hatton and you told him what his name, what Uh, name did you tell him? Well
0: (laughs) my co-writer Tony Hatton was due to arrive in in Japan and uh, we'd been testing and Honda's test track or the the Suzuka test track um, their HRC and and, uh, their, their racing teams were all there and they'd been checking the times and they were asking about this guy Crosby, how you know, like he's quick. He's mm. far too fast, <laughs> and we kind of jokingly sort of said, "Ah, he's he's okay, but the the, the real fast one, Tony Hatton, is arriving," <laughs> <laughs> and it scared the hell out of Honda apparently. But anyway, when Tony, Tony had never been to Japan, of course, so um, I organised um, one of Moriwaki's staff members, Hara, mm. to go and pick up Tony. Now Harrah speaks absolutely no English at all. (laughs) And right to this day, he still doesn't. So I taught him how to say, um, you know, when you recognise Tony, Tony to say, you know, ask him if he's Tony Hatton. And his instructions were to go up to him and hold out his hand and say, are you fuckface Hatton? (laughs) And I know it sounds bad, And he did. He did exactly that. (laughs) Tony was taken back a bit, (laughs) as as you can expect. In
1: 2014, Team Mushashi
0: completed the Suzaka Japan 8-hour endurance motorcycle race in 6 hours and 56 minutes think it might be time to change the name of the race
1: I'm intrigued about how the opportunity to get involved with Suzuki came about because in the moving of some of the of the chess pieces did it open up a little bit surprisingly for you how did that happen
0: well it was it was a big surprise because 79 my major racing was conducted in Australia and also doing the TT Formula 1 championship in England by itself. There were some other races that I did around the world, but um, what, what transpired, and I can always remember this, I was at, um, oh, where was it now? Uh, so I can remember it. Scarborough. Scarborough. <laughs> yeah. a terrible bloody place. Terrible. <laughs> it's like a goat track, but everybody loved it because it was kind of, you know, the crowd could get really close to you and um, it was tight racing. Anyway. So I'm there on my um, Morowaki bike, and there's a problem with the brake. And uh, you know, the first race, it was you know I, I couldn't deal with it. So I ended up talking to um, Radar yeah. and Mick Smith, yeah. who were working at that stage with um, with the Suzuki team, and they were.
1: Would- you probably need to sell them a little bit in the sense that. They're, they're from our part of the world, relative to England, and they were enormously talented guys in an, in an engineering or team sense, weren't they?
0: Yeah, they were. I, I mean, both of them have good, great stories to tell. I mean, Radar came from a, um, a motocross background and turned up in uh, in the UK in 78 or 79, ended up working with, funnily enough, my, my the guy I originally talked about, the, the first motorbike I rode, Ivan Miller. So he became a uh, like a mechanic for him doing Grand Prix wow. at uh, Commerford's, which was just down the road from where we were living in Surbiton. Um, again, Mick had spent a whole year with uh, the Australians, you know, Jeff um, Sale, Murray Sale, all those all those guys doing the Formula Seven Fifty racing in in seventy eight. So they were all. They were all over there at the time and they ended up working with Suzuki. So when I come along, you know, these are, these are contacts that I already knew and it was kind of like a backdoor entry in some respects. But one of the things I've got to, got to you know, like kind of explain is that, that that period between, say, 76 and 79 was horrendous as far as losing lives on the racetrack goes. Mm-hmm. Um, when Suzuki at the end of... Um, well, they were halfway through seventy nine negotiating to continue with Barry. Yep. Barry Sheen. The, Barry Sheen, yeah. There was a bit of a there was a bit of a standoff there. And yes. and the standoff really was a fact that um the the Suzuki race team was being run by Barry out of Barry's house in Charleswood. Mm-hmm. Um, and Suzuki felt that they were kind of losing a little bit of contact.
1: Mm. I think in the book you talk about it I love Baz and I worked with him for many years, but I think you talk about it being a bit Tail wagging the dog, and they wanted to change that. Is that right?
0: Yeah. Well, you you paraphrased that perfectly, so I can I, I can now move on. <laughs> well done. Um, that that was really the the crux of it, you know. So they had to bring control back into Suzuki Great Britain. Barry pushed back against that, and as a consequence, there was a a change of a change of command, I suppose, mm. and the Suzuki race team was reintroduced back to Beddington Lane and Croydon, of which um, there was radar and Mick and they were all they're all sort of kinda of there. So the, um, the 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 talent spotters kinda of went out and said, Okay, well who are we going to replace Barry with? And it wasn't hard because you had Tom Heron, you had um, you know, John Williams, they had all these other guys that were English, but they they, they tended in a short period of probably only three or four months, they were, they got killed. Mm, so it was, it was, a, it was horrendous. Mm. So what, of course, happened then is that they decided they had to look elsewhere and they elected to uh, talk with Randy Mamola to come on board for the Grand Prix's mm-hmm. um, and they also wanted to push on the Formula One championship with Yoshima, of course, because they had a good tie-up. So I was the target. I didn't know it at the time. So there I am at Scarborough and talking with Radar about oh we can't get this bloody thing to work. So, okay, if I can't get two discs to work, I'm sure as hell I should be able to get one disc. So I took one disc off completely and just ran the race with one disc that I knew was working. And oh, that was the days. That's that's what you did in those days, you know. (laughs) But anyway, uh, as as part of that connection in the afternoon at Scarborough. Um, They let it slip that my name had been put up as a potential rider for Suzuki Great Britain in 1980. And I thought, whoa, that's a big step. You know, you've got to remember that, you know, I'd turned up to do the pre-TT, then we did the TT, the post-TT, done a whole bunch of these other things. No way in the world would I have ever... Dreamed that somebody would come along and say, "Here's a here's a factory ride."
1: Just just to clarify here, you are one of the most diversely successful guys I know in the motorcycle landscape. But you are talking about playing in the 500cc Grand Prix World Championship, which is the creme de la creme, the 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 top of it all, is
0: Yeah, well, that's like I say, it was something that I. I never dreamed of and when I was confronted with this I was actually sort of taken back a bit because whoa you know like have I got personally the capability to do it and I was I was doubting myself although having said that um I'd got to grips with the two strokes meaning the Kawasaki two strokes that Greg Hansford had left in Australia Mm -hmm. for me to ride so I was getting up to speed with that and I'd had a couple of pretty good results on that so I sort of kind of almost felt comfortable enough to to go with it, but a little bit unsure of how it was going to pan out. Um, So when I got the call from Morris Knight to say, "Uh, would you come and see us, please? And I'm gone. (laughs) (laughs) yep, I'll be there. I'm here. (laughs) Straight away. It took took about two seconds. Um, And funnily enough, I only spoke to him the other day. Um, He was prepared to pay a hell of a lot more for it for me. But we started off with a, a low ball. He said, "Well, I think we can give you. I think we can give you a bike, and perhaps there might be an opportunity for a 500 Grand Prix bike." And I said, "Well, okay. Well, tell us exactly so I know where I'm at." And he said, "Well, we're prepared to give you a Formula One bike uh, to do the Formula One TT Championship, the Isle of Man, Suzuka, mm-hmm. all those big international events. Ireland, of course, and uh, and we'll also um, we'll give you a 500 Grand Prix bike to run." next to Randy. And uh, he said, Well, you know, we don't have very much money, of course, but we can offer you was something like two thousand five hundred pound. And I said, Right, that's me. I'm done. Done. <laughs> and the reason it's not a lot of arm twisting. No, reply. no, not, not 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 at all. And I'd I'd always learnt that um, you know, you make your own successes, and if you get paid to ride so ride something, that's a bonus, but not necessarily the driving force mm-hmm. because I know that I can go out and get start money now, £600, and and if i got the best bikes, I'm going to win the prize money. Mm. So that double-edged sword with, well, well, do I argue for more money, start? No, let's, let's just cut to the chase, done. So that's what happened. I, I ended up with a contract.
1: What were those bikes in Grand Prix terms? like to ride back then you, you talk beyond that period and Wayne Gardner says they were they were a real you know hard thing to manhandle in many respects what would they
0: like to race Well I think Wayne was lucky enough to be at the other end of the scale Our ones were um, by his definition, they would have been docile because those big V4s that he rode, that was just incredible. Mm. Um, they're, they're not the big bang bikes, but they're still extremely difficult to ride. They had 110 kilograms and about 120 horsepower. <sighs> so it's not a bad power-to-weight ratio. Um, so the first test session was booked in to go to Hamamatsu and I was, I was to test the Formula 1 bike and the GP bike. So wet Randy and I turned up there and... Um, and we, we ran, well, I ran both the Formula One bike and, and he specifically stayed on the 500, but I, I got to ride the 500 as well. And, you know, so the, there's, there's times when you get an opportunity to go testing and you can imagine... Um, Lewis Hamilton, for example, being taken by, I don't know, Alpha or something like that and saying, okay, we're going to Magna Cause, the 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 the, the lap record is one minute, three seconds. Straight away in Lewis's mind, he'll be thinking, right, I've got to do a 102. Yeah. That was the same thing with me. I went there and I thought, okay, well, the test riders get round here in a 108 or something like that. I need to be at least a 108, if not, if not quicker. And I got within a second, I was a 109, but Randy did a 107. So straight away it was like, hmm, okay, but then I had the other the Formula One bike as well, and that was, that was a, a different thing altogether. But on the back of that, of course, was that when I'd left in 79 to go back to Australia, the only way I could get my bike back was to do a race at Macau. Yeah. And Macau is an unbelievably great place to go for a holiday, not necessarily ride because it's pretty dangerous. And I ended up slipping off my poor old KR 750 and hitting a wall and being picked up by a bunch of nurses and thrown into the back of a, an old what looked like a... J4 Bedford, and take it, it's a pinball machine there, mate. For for, God for God.
1: listeners, there's just nothing. There's no nope. for a bike
0: rider, there's nothing. No, there? well, it's 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 on YouTube if you want to have a look at it. <laughs> <laughs> I come around a corner and we lost the back end, and and the, the bike hit the armco and bounced off and took the padding with it, and I hit the armco, so it was it was kind of a yeah, it was it was a pretty good little crash, but it hurt my shoulder, and I had to go to Japan like three three, I think it was three weeks later, and I didn't damage anything, but uh, it was it was a bit of a, a, a testing time to be able to go and get to grips with a brand new Grand Prix bike. The The other issue that, that I had was there was a lot of pushback from other people within the UK base because, A, Suzuki Great Britain had just hired an American and a New Zealander, and there was no English riders in the team, of course. So while Randy's contract was to do um, the the Grand prix and act as backup with a Formula One bike. Mine was kind of almost reverse. Mine was to do the Formula One and act as a backup for the GP. But that was short-lived. Randy did, I think, two two races and said, no, I don't want a Formula One bike, you can keep that. So I ended up with two bikes and I ran the, the rest of the championship doing the Formula One and the Grand Prix plus the Isle of Man, Plus Ulster, plus Suzuka, plus Daytona. Daytona, Yeah. Yeah. So my workload was probably three times what what he was uh, because I was dealing with, you know, a multitude of four strokes, two strokes, Grand Prix, racing on the roads, racing on short circuits in the UK, you know, uh, the TT and then Suzuka and all that sort of stuff. So my spread of. attributes i suppose that i sort of took with me into the following year was that i had hell of a lot of experience on a lot of different tracks mm. it was good it was really good
1: that leads me to something that's probably a bit hard to answer four stroke or two stroke what's the what's the favorite for you
0: i think any any motorbike rider can have a favorite but I was sort of right in the middle of that. I didn't. It didn't. It didn't actually worry me. Mm. I loved. I loved the Grand Prix bike because it was. It was nimble. It was light, um, and and ridden with a bit, fair bit of aggression. It, it, it performed really well. The four stroke. You had to. Things happened slightly slower, but if you got into the rhythm of it, the four stroke was was equal pretty much equal. okay it was had was 135 horsepower or something like that at the time being a thousand cc, but it also weighed 169 kilos. And to put it in perspective, in 81 uh, we ran the Grand Prix at uh, the British Grand Prix. I was on my factory bike, 500 on pole. I was also on pole on my Formula One bike and there was like less than a second between it's- the two. So we're talking about two completely different motorbikes, but having a reasonably good, um, fairly close, you know, uh, what would you call it, um, result as fast as as you, as you can go on these things. They were really, really close.
1: Not everyone, when you look at motorsport, is good across the spectrum, right? So Some people are very good on a two-stroke, but maybe not as fast on a four-stroke or not as smooth, vice versa. Yeah.
0: Why were you... So good across both what, what was what was the key for you there? I started off on some really puff bucket bikes <laughs> honest, honestly. Anything better than what I had before was a bonus. <laughs> honestly, the bikes the bikes that I started off racing were they handled like a roller skate in a gravel pit. It was just <laughs> like there was no there was no sense no, no rhyme, no reason for it, but they bucked and kicked and weaved and that's what I thought was actually mm. normal. Mm. So if you can imagine given a bike that actually steered quite well, it actually gave you a bit more of a, um, uh, well, a bit more ammunition, I suppose. Mm. And then when you get to a Grand Prix, like the, like a five hundred Grand Prix bike, which is supposedly the best that the manufacturer can produce in terms of you know handling, braking, power, grip, the whole lot. Well, you know, it's 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 a lot easier to do that knowing that you've just jumped off some old monster before because everything also works works a lot better.
1: In your career, there are some unbelievable highlights mate from Daytona win to TT success to Suzuka 8 hour it's probably very hard to answer because of the diversity
0: in all of them but, but is there one that you really cherish what's the one and why? Oh, it's got to be for, for me. Well, as soon as I said that, I thought of another one. It's <laughs> a problem. Um, I think probably one, the, one, one of the best ones was Suzuka, of course, mm. um, in 1980. I mean, we, we turned up there. We um, and, and for a multitude of reasons, not necessarily just what happened on the day, but the build-up to it, um, the fact that I was riding with Wes Cooley. Um, And this was basically the first time that we were going to run together. Um, He was the Yoshimura America's rider. I was sort of Suzuki Great Britain's rider and we got together and there wasn't much in it between us in terms of times. I was probably a little bit quicker. But the end result was that we went out during the race. Well, about about a third of the way through, Wes pulled up lame. He became... um, (laughs) Well, once they pulled up lame, he, he's a diabetic, and his blood sugars went all, all out, all over the place, and he had to come in. And I had to actually finish the rest of the rest of the race. So again, this is on your shoulders. On my shoulders and half the <laughs> bloody prize money. Remember, I told you it would come back. So we got one and a half million yen or something split right down the middle. You know, and I'm I'm sitting there saying to myself, "Well, I should get more than that because I did more than half the race." You know, but it was it was the the reason why it was interesting was the fact that Eddie Lawson and Greg Hansford were running a Kawasaki. And there was less than – I think it's still one of the closest-fought races. It was down to about five seconds or something like that. I'm not sure exactly what the end, end, end result, but it got to a point where I couldn't do one more, one more lap. When I went across the line, if I hadn't made the eight-hour mark, I would have had to do one more lap. And that would have put me over my maximum allocation. allocation. Yeah, oh. so it was it was that close. And I remember um, the two people that were working—one of them on an abacus—that <laughs> was Pops, and 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 uh, Neville Doyle counting his fingers. Um, they were trying to work out whether I would exceed that or not. And and I can remember coming over the start finish line there, and suddenly the the whole place just lit up you know the the lights came on and and um the the flash you know the flash of all the people with there you know it was just amazing it was one of the best um things that i'd ever done but I guess the reason being is that the effort that you have to put in thirty seven degrees of temperature and mm-hmm. and you and you have this expectation you do twenty three laps and you come in and you I mean, nowadays they've got it so easy. They've got swimming pools and all that sort of stuff and massage people. And, <laughs> but now, you know, like I'd come in, I'd do 23 laps, I'd get off the bike and I'd sit somewhere and have a pro carry sweat, I think they call those isotonic drinks, horrible things, and and just wait for my turn to go out again. Well, I'd done that for a couple of times and then when I was expecting to come in to stay in, I was told to stay on the bike. No no reason, no, just... just go way you go no explanation at all so i did another 23 laps and then they put um wes out for about three laps or four laps that's all he could do um, but that gave us enough enough time for me to finish the race that's part two done of
1: my chat with cross make sure you check out the final installment part three covers his sudden decision to stop bike racing the move into touring cars and more see you soon Rusty's Garage is recorded for Podcast One. Written and presented by me, Greg Rust. Series producer and editor is Alex Mitchell. Audio production by Darcy Thompson. If there's someone you want me to talk to on Rusty's Garage, get in touch on the show page at podcast1australia.com.au. I'm Greg Rust. Enjoy the drive, but drive
0: safely.